Mm. It's such a good question, Joe. Um, and th there's so much we could build on it, right? So more wiser podcast, Dr. JJ Gatt, artificial intelligence expert. Artificial intelligence or AI, I think when people hear that, they have an immediate preconceived notion of what it means, myself included. And I think maybe perhaps before we dive in, I'll ask you something that most are too embarrassed to ask, but I'll just do it anyways. What actually is artificial intelligence? What does it mean to you? Well, artificial intelligence really is a simulation of human intelligence in machines which are built and programmed to think, to reason, to learn, and to problem-solve problems of like humans. So artificial intelligence systems can typically execute tasks that in general society would require human intellectual processes. These, Joe, would be processes like understanding speech or understanding language, uh, taking decisions, translating between languages, synthesizing concepts, or even seeing the world and understanding its true visual uh, perception. And that would be sort of the more formalistic understanding of what AI is, right? So it is the simulation of human intelligence. Now, is there a point, though, where advanced algorithms and the, their compilation become what you would deem intelligent? Because I know you can string together some very um, advanced ways to look at data and then give you recommendations or optimize. But at what point does it become, quote unquote, intelligent? So this is one of the key questions in AI. But to answer it, we need to focus on defining what intelligence really means to us humans, right? So I think AI's thinking is utterly inhuman, right? But we have presented it and built it in such a way that it actually appears to be deeply human, but it's not, right? It is a different way of thinking. It is a different way of capturing billions of data points out there and making sense of those data points to create an output. So, Joe, I'd put it this way. I think AI's intelligence is intelligent in a pure algorithmic and computational sense, but it does not mimic the human mind's ability of intelligence. I think we have a very large gap between where we are as humans and that moment in which AI can attain capabilities such as human consciousness. Now, even here, the interpretation of what consciousness means varies from philosopher to philosopher. But consciousness on intelligence, you know, this idea about thinking about thought is presently something that AI cannot do. Was this reflective character that we have in humans, the idea, the opportunity rather, to step back away from data and from it create wisdom, that skill is not AI. And the human mind has these very intrinsic characteristics, Joe, such as 
subjectivity, such as intentionality, such as uh, teleology, which basically give it its purpose to serve as a different type of computational engine. We don't have an understanding that AI is there yet or will get there in the short term. And I think a lot of people out there have, I want to say fear, but it might not be fear, but apprehension towards this technology. And especially when they hear folks like you, Dr. Gat, give statistics that in the near future, maybe we could automate up to 45% of the tasks in our current labor economy. So I think people have this worry that they're going to be replaced by AI, where that's not maybe necessarily the truth. How do you dispel those fears to people as we move forward? I think it's our job to ensure that when we touch on artificial intelligence, we move away from the polarized debate of either AI is absolutely uh, great and it's here to solve some of the deepest problems which we have, uh, such as global warming, or on the other hand of the polarized debate, AI is here to replace humanity, to take our jobs and to... Uh, reduce our agency. I think both views are extreme and incorrect. So perhaps our job um, as technologists, as entrepreneurs, as philosophers, as media people, is really to try to bring the debate into the center and move it away from that despicable marketing speech where we often tend to hyperbolize these fears. I think our job is really to have a meaningful conversation. Now, to the question about fears, I think in most circles that I travel in, the main concern I see is loss of agency. It's sort of characterized by this sense of helplessness over one's own choices because we are increasingly driven by automated decision-making, you know, whether it is the selection of a candidate from a pool of CVs all the way to, I don't know, bank risk relating to mortgage. And I think that you address this fear of loss of agency, particularly through the development of artificial intelligence that is responsible, right? So how do we think about AI regulation? How do we think about the public engagement that we should have? And it is possible to build trust in artificial intelligence and to mitigate this anxiety and fear. Now, trust is an interesting concept, Joe, to unpack because there are a wide variety, if you wish, of layers of regulation and ethics and elements of social good which are packed into this notion of trust. And if you think about it, it's a little bit of a paradox, right? Because you trust a human. I mean, why should you trust technology? It's almost like you're trying to attribute human characteristics once again to the technology. And here we are full circle at our definition. But trusting technology is the precursor, Joe, that we need to lower the fear. Trusting AI is the first step towards using it, towards accepting it. And I don't think that we should trust AI mainly because it becomes computationally better, because it algorithmically can achieve more. I think we trust AI as a society because it is lawful, because it is ethical, because it is robust, and robust not merely from a technical perspective, but also in terms of the social environment that we live in. 
explainability is the fourth and key element of this value set for trust, right? So we can understand the outputs of the technology and interpret them. And although to a large extent it is giving human characteristics of AI, trust is a key ingredient to allow us to allow AI to proliferate in society in a free and safe way. Hey, if your career is perfect and everything is going exactly as planned and you've reached the height of where you want to go, skip this ad. But if not, I wrote a book called Leader Relativity, finally a starting point for new leaders. And I think it might just be up your alley. Because honestly, when I first started down my leadership journey eight years ago, it was confusing. There was so much thrown at me. And oh, by the way, what I was reading in the real world was completely different than what I was being taught at work. So if you're in this weird spot where you know you want to take your next step, but you're not quite sure how to do it, please give my book a try. You're exactly who I wrote it for. I can honestly say leadership has never been made this simple. So if that sounds interesting, if you're ready to take that leap with me, hop over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy books and grab your copy today. Thanks. So then how do you feel about folks like Elon Musk who very publicly state fears about AI advancing too fast without regulation? Do you agree with him or is he more doing it as a publicity stunt to blow it out of proportion? I think regulatory compliance, the regulation discussion is not a threat which stifles innovation. And I feel that often in America, the polarized debate tends to move between, you know, let's not regulate AI at all, or let's over-regulate it and then stifle innovation and ideas. I think I would unlock from the sort of Elon Musk part is, you know, polarized (laughs) approach by saying, Maybe regulatory compliance is really an opportunity for us, Joe. Maybe the successful companies of tomorrow are those who are capable of building AI technologies, but which also fulfill regulatory requirements. And the key regulatory requirement is building trust, right? So acceptance is engendered through trust. And I think this is a very key topic. And in the European context, we see that the European Union is the first global entity creating a set of uh, regulatory parameters for artificial intelligence. This is called the EU's AI Act, which is presently in what's called the trialogue stage um, in Brussels. And within probably 16 to 24 months, would become law. And this has extraterritorial jurisdiction, which means that it won't only apply to companies using or creating AI in Europe, but also those outside of Europe who are impacting European citizens. And the scope of this legislation has a number of key pillars, but we come to the very fundamental good governance principles of technology. So how do we manage risk? How do we reduce threats coming from cybersecurity? What information governance should an AI system have? Uh, How does privacy become relevant within the context of artificial intelligence? What if there are predictive activities? How do we create policies around that? What about environmental sustainability? So all these key concepts are baked into this new piece of regulation, which is the world's first 
um, global set of rules. So I would say, yes, we need regulatory parameters for one of the most important discoveries of our time. And yes, companies can be additionally competitive if in their entrepreneurial spirit, together with the creation of profit, they also give legitimacy, time and priority to regulatory compliance, because that will engender trust, which engenders accessibility, which engenders usage, which in turn creates large market share. And and I want to get your take on more of the ethical piece in a moment, but I, I do want to ask before we move on, is there any part of AI today that does give you pause that's either hyper unregulated or perhaps implementations that you could foresee that that does give you pause? Joe, I think we are witnessing a new national world order, largely, that is emerging. So if you had to think of it, you've got those countries who are able to join the AI arms race, who can invest in technology, which improves the economy, it improves public policy, it improves citizen engagement. And then you have those nations who are unable to access the technology. They create, you know, high levels of inequality in society, sort of laggard systems in healthcare or other areas, and essentially economic dismay. I like to think of them as quasi-medieval realities and states. My fear is that the AI race we're in at the moment is creating these two categories of nations. And um, I think it's a problem, right? Um, And there are two reasons why perhaps this is worth delving into. The first one is an argument made by Professor Zuboff at Harvard, um, who wrote about the concept of surveillance capitalism in a fantastic book on the topic. And what she argues quite correctly is that we are separating users, citizens, into these two groups. So the 99% who are observed by algorithmic capability and the 1% who actually see the data of those who are observed. And this is also looking at a stratification of sorts, this time not of nations, but of citizen groupings, creating the same problem, which is the asymmetry of problem. And I'm concerned about that because the concentration of power typically leads to social stratification, right? Um, And I don't think that it's a good norm for us to build society with. And I think that when you have an asymmetry in power, you typically create political inequality. And that is the first uh, disruptor of the democratic process. The second reason why I think that this is a problem is that if you had to understand the main economic drivers of the 20th century, Joe, you'd need to look at the oil economy, you know, how it was acquired, how it was distributed, and how power was concentrated. Whereas if you need to understand the present day story, you'd really need to look at the semiconductor industry. Why? Because semiconductors are creating the core capability which we use in our GPUs, our processing units, or you could think of them like the main hardware element behind AI. 
And uh, there's a fantastic book on this subject, by the way, by Chris Miller called The Chip War. And it looks at this concentration of power within Taiwan, which is the single largest developer of semiconductor chips used in AI um, today. So you have this huge uh, supply chain concentration in one particular country with um, Europe falling behind, with the states falling behind. And here too, you see this big risk factor, whereby uh, an arms arms race predicated by one particular supplier is going to spell uh, global uh, problems. And um, here you see that the way my mind thinks about risk is far less about, you know, risk of jobs displacement being displaced over time, which we could talk about, but more about this large, you know, macro uh, geopolitical uh, divide which is occurring because these issues are typically much harder to resolve and uh, permeate over time and uh, uh, political systems. And that's a superb challenge for the world. And and these are, I think, concerns that most people don't have because most people focus on the technology piece, right? They hear, oh, two artificial intelligent chatbots made their own language and now I should be worried, right? It's, it's things like that. But you mentioned hardware. And so I wanted to ask you, as computers get more and more sophisticated and we eventually maybe, I don't know, 20 years down the road, maybe take the leap into quantum computing, Will the horsepower that these algorithms have concern you at all to their abilities to um, search through backlogs, give um, hyper-realistic predictions? Is there any concern there? With great power, and quantum computing is significantly larger than the computing power we have today, uh, comes a great degree of ethical and moral responsibility. So I think there are four points around quantum computing, which are worth unpacking, Joe, from your question. I think the first one is to realize that quantum computing is going to potentially revolutionize once again the field of artificial intelligence, because solving complex problems more quickly than our classic computing era, which we're in now, is a huge change. It simply doesn't bring more benefits quickly. It also accelerates risks. So it's it's basically, if you wish, morphing the timeline within which we perceive advancements to occur. So quantum is a very important uh, milestone which is ahead, and we need to understand both the benefits and the risks. Okay, second point, and let's amplify on risks. My uh, core focus risk in quantum particularly is security. So we know that uh, quantum computing is particularly good at breaking cryptographic schemes and therefore posing additional levels of security concerns beyond those which we are already struggling with. And I believe that's an area which is uh, an opportunity for us to develop counter mechanisms, but also one to research in the academic field and in the industrial field. However, we also need to think about the third element, which is competitive advantage. So as we said earlier about the AI arms race, I think here too, we need to be very weary that if a particular group 
a political group or an economic group gains a very significant advantage in quantum computing capabilities, it radically changes the geopolitical and economic climate uh, worldwide very, very rapidly. And we're not used to such rapidity of change. As you know, most revolutions spanned over multiple decades. But if quantum accelerates the already speedy journey that AI has, then the competitive advantage that one particular nation state or political group might have over another could be radically uh, transformative. The fourth aspect worth noting in quantum is that what we're essentially doing is scaling up, therefore morphing the timeline of a number of uh, elements, principle uh, amongst which are the ethical dilemmas. So faster computing is obviously going to scale up all present ethical and societal concerns that already exist, you know, from the concept of bias to inclusion and accessibility. The moment you scale up benefits and risk, uh, the ethical dimension becomes more relevant. And here, therefore, Joe, is our opportunity to start thinking about an ethical framework which needs to be in place as quickly as possible for us to be able to not merely regulate but coexist with this critical computing capability. Now, do you foresee any safeguards needing to be established and put in place so that AI, and I'm going to use a term that you might laugh at, could be let loose? Because I think that's people's fear, right? That AI can eventually become sentient and, and have a mind of its own, and I'm no longer going to listen to whoever's coding me. Is there <laughs> is there any sort of... It, do you foresee a safeguard like that at all needed as the computing power becomes so more advanced where they could go in and, and change their own code base and then no longer listen to people? Or is that just so unfounded it's not even worth talking about? We need to talk about two key principles here, oversight and alignment. I think, Joe, your question is principally about oversight. So, one of the AI safety researchers I follow um, is a chap called Hendricks. And he wrote a recent paper, which is called Natural Selection Favors AI Over Human. And he sort of gives this very realistic version of what misalignment and lack of oversight actually looks like. So he explains that, you know, AI is getting exponentially much better. So we're increasingly capitulating our decision-making to artificial intelligence. So, okay, for now, we're just allowing ChatGPT to write an article, and then we're getting you know a new tool to become a virtual mentor. And then suddenly, to stay competitive, the company's entire marketing demands are driven through AI. And then, and so on and so forth, more important decisions are sort of given to AI tool sets, which themselves constantly become more complex and therefore more opaque. And so what he describes in this paper is this idea that the market pressures for companies to capitulate or to give over a larger amount of decision-making happens very quickly. And for them to remain in the market, they need to uh, use such tool sets. So for me, what this implies and this is why this discussion is really about oversight, is that we need 
a method in which we can align the objectives of the AI tools that we create with the objectives that we have as a human species. And if you think about this, Joe, I'm sure you'd agree that possibly in today's day and age, this lack of alignment is not merely between technology and humans, but it is between humans and humans, humans and media entities, humans and their governments, humans and non-governmental authorities, and so on. So it's almost like we're at this turning point, which to me is a very exciting opportunity, really, right? Where we need to ask ourselves these questions. You know, how do governing bodies regulate for artificial intelligence? How do we distribute the immense wealth that AI can create? And how do we do so equitably, unlike our experience in the oil economy, right? How do we reframe the notion of work and work displacement and the meaning of work? How do we rethink public policy on matters like education and, you know, the economy? So to your question, I don't think that this is a technical debate on whether AI can write itself and improve its generative capabilities. I think this is a debate about politics, about coordination, about alignment, about human oversight. And if we think of this question this way, I think we'll have much more leverage. And then you said something earlier about the ethic, the ethics of AI and fighting bias. And so as an algorithm, I would be searching my backlog of basically history, which obviously has biases caked into every decision that's ever been made and uh, whether it was racial, gender, you, you know, you name any type of discrimination. So how do then the developers of these new algorithms ethically take that into account and perpetuate um, either recommendations or, or what have you that are more fair, but not necessarily disregarding the past? What's the line there? Mm. It's such a good question, Joe, um, and th there's so much we could build on it, right? So let's start with the technical part, which is, you know, I'm a programmer, I'm sitting in an AI firm building a tool. Well, how do I avoid bias? So there are probably four key areas that we look at, um, and these relate to the four stages of AI development. So in the first stage, which is the preparation of data, there are particular methods which we could use to avoid bias. For example, I want to collect my data from diverse sources to make sure that the data I collect is representative of the population, not merely the Caucasian version of the population. A second technique often used at that stage is auditing, you know, getting third-party entities to examine the training and the data sets particularly to pick up imbalances or inherent biases. We also use pre-processing techniques like, for example, sampling to ensure that there is a balance in the classes of data which we typically uh, bring into the project. The second stage is algorithmic development, right? This is the core of the AI product. And over there, we often focus on what we call fairness-aware algorithms. So we've got some machine learning tools which are themselves designed to be fair, meaning that they have this ability to give 
similar outcomes for diverse groups. We make sure that our models are interpretable because when they are interpretable, third-party auditors or individuals find it much easier to audit the model to make sure that the decisions and outcomes which are taken are correct and therefore any bias can be uh, spotted. We also typically, Joe, use external auditors. These are third-party evaluation models to come in once again to challenge in the algorithmic development stage to make sure that if the internal team missed a particular principle, this is corrected. There are two further stages, which is the post-training stage. So once you've gone out of the training process, you have monitoring systems to ensure that the solution has a transparent approach to its limitations and that the steps taken so far to limit bias are actually effective. And here we also usually bring in an ethical review committee, which is actually looking now at the last stage before deployment to make sure that especially in high stakes areas or high risks area like i don't know healthcare or criminal justice or finance the ethical review is correctly identifying and testing for bias and the last of four stages is sort of now widely looking at stakeholder involvement so our teams need to be interdisciplinary. They need to come from the widest amount of broad selection that represent the market that they are serving. You know, we need input from our users and the community to make sure that the goals which we are training the AI tool to seek because AI is inherently goal-driven, are the same goals that we wish to seek as a community, as a humanity. But perhaps moving out of the sort of four-stage technical bias reduction discussion, maybe I'll end with this comment. Joe, the bias that concerns me most is the bias, the cognitive bias of doing nothing. So, in 2018, uh, Sundar Pichai, right, CEO of Google, um, who isn't a chap who often overstates uh, facts, he's a, he's a very neutral, you know, focused man, he said that AI is probably the most important thing that humanity has ever worked on. This was 2018, right? And the human cognitive bias of doing nothing is so huge, you know, this expectation that tomorrow is likely going to be like uh, today and like yesterday. But if you had to widen that, you know, to, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from today, this improvement curve that we are going through, which is so steep, needs to ensure that we don't rest on our laurels, but actually move forward and think through the regulatory, ethical, and developmental requirements that we have. Because skepticism is easy. It's so easy to say, oh yeah, but you know, these tools are just a game, you know, chat GPT is ultimately just uh, autocomplete. But Poking holes today and not thinking about where technology is taking us, uh, I think is just the wrong uh, politics, right? Is the wrong approach to public policy. It's generally just terrible strategy. I would prefer to live in a world that aligns these tools to the culture and the needs of human flourishing of society. So you mentioned AI auditors, which was interesting and something I haven't heard of before. Now, I would 
imagine this will one day become a profession. How do you teach those people to go in and accurately assess the algorithms? I mean, I would imagine you have to be both extremely sharp to be able to investigate code bases, but also you have to be trained in ethics and in diversity and inclusion and all sorts of things like that. In your mind, what would the training be like for someone to actually go in and look at those? It is quite true that the jobs of the future, and we can talk a little bit more about that, are going to be multidisciplinary. In fact, if you look at most universities today, they are fusing AI with all different departments and units, particularly because, as you well said, for auditors, you need this multidisciplinary academic background. But to answer the question very specifically, I think an audit role in AI is likely to have a very central concern around risk. It's not about code, but it's about looking at an AI solution and perhaps categorizing it into four buckets. Is it unacceptable risk? Is it high risk? Is it limited risk? And is it minimal risk? And once you understand in which bucket the proposed solution is, then you can start thinking about the technical, regulatory, and ethical aspects of it. So let's just pick one example to be as pragmatic as possible, Joe. So think of a system which is providing mass surveillance. You know, we've seen a lot of similar systems um, in China, which start off as a sort of social scoring method and then actually provide back into central government uh, a degree of non-consensual surveillance, right? And now this is problematic because in society, that type of activity manipulates the behavior of society by gently nudging them based on the parameters that the state is trying to achieve. And I think that causes harm. So an auditor looking at a mass surveillance system like that needs to have the prowess, the capability to immediately shoot and categorize that system as being unacceptable risk and then going through a risk mitigation or a product redevelopment or conformity assessment. And unless that is capable, the system should be prohibited. The question should therefore not be, what can AI build? Because of course over there, the options are limitless. But the question should be, what should we allow to be built, which is going to further humanity's need to flourish, to grow in a peaceful and productive way? And that which is unacceptable, an AI auditor needs to prohibit immediately. Hey, everybody. This week's episode is brought to you by my new book, Leader Relativity. Becoming a leader has literally never been this simple. I spent two and a half years boiling it down, waking up at 4.30 every morning, thinking how much easier can I make this subject for someone who's a little nervous in the beginning and just wants something to get started, to get their foot in the door. So that's what I did. The book's called Leader Relativity and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Thanks. Is there any sort of ethical responsibility for companies moving forward to disclose when, say, I reach out to a healthcare provider and I'm speaking to someone? Should they be forced to tell me if I'm speaking to an artificial intelligent being or a person? And should every company have something similar to that? Or is it just the Wild West? Absolutely. I think that we're touching on um, personification. So let me start off by saying that I believe that companies have a very significant chunk 
of responsibility when it comes to AI education. And we should not think that the only stakeholder uh, within AI education is the state or the government or uh, public entities. It is not. And I think today, companies are often more trusted than governments. There's a very important uh, survey done annually uh, in the US about this. And so their uh, moral obligation for towards fairness, trustworthiness, explainability and usability is extremely high. To your specific example, I think it would be a tragedy if AI would have to impersonify a human and not disclose that this is essentially identity theft and that the AI is posing as otherwise being a a human being. I think that's ethically incorrect. And even when it comes to, you know, virtual assistant technology or chatbots or uh, voice synthesizer outputs, we need to make sure that we kick off by explaining to the end user that this is not a human person on the other side of the line, but it is an AI artifact with specific limitations and with a specific objective uh, to be completed and often the tool is actually doing a great job you know it's widening the accessibility let's say to healthcare or to commerce uh, as the case may be it is available 24 7 it's providing faster turnaround than humans could so we are not putting at play the necessity of this technology what we're arguing is that they need to be a set of guard rails within which the technology is deployed and the first amongst which is the concept of transparency. So I want to make sure that I know this is an AI tool, that this is not a black box and that the decision-making process that the technology takes, although difficult to understand, still needs to be interpretable. In fact, we could draw a distinction between interpretability and explainability, right? So interpretability is the ability to determine cause and effect from a machine learning model, whilst explainability is a higher bar which requires knowledge of both the nodes and what they represent and their importance to the whole model's performance. I would argue that if we can create interpretability, it is a great way of ensuring that our AI tool sets are not black boxes, but are understandable, are interpretable by the general public after we disclose that it is indeed an algorithm which is sitting at the other side of the line. And so that leads me into understanding if products that you see or interact with have been made by AI. So I'm thinking of when you see a photograph and it has a watermark on it, right? Or um, maybe uh, with a digital file, there's some sort of metadata tag. Do you foresee a, a future where it needs to be disclosed whether something give it a paper at a university or a, or a photograph that was created has to have some sort of tag to tell you it was AI generated? Yes, I think we need attribution mechanisms. They could be invisible watermarks, which can be detected by third-party tools. 
uh, at the university we already use and have been using for many years uh, plagiarism detection systems. In the same way, we'll be able to use uh, AI-created uh, uh, systems. We have already seen an early paper by one of the major vendors uh, in AI in the States, mm -hmm. which is proposing how this uh, could work. And this concept of attribution is critical because then it also touches on, as you might imagine, patents, intellectual property, copyright, trademarks, um, on the creative arts, and attribution of inputs. Mm -hmm. So if you widen this net which you have cast, you could see that the ethics of consuming AI are very broad. We just touched on, you know, transparency and explainability and now attribution, but there are more concepts, you know, accountability and responsibility. So trying to understand and establish clear lines around, I don't know, juridical and legal uh, personality and responsibility. We haven't yet touched on environmental impact but there's a huge amount of computational resource which is draining energy whilst we are fighting huge environmental challenges. We haven't spoken about job displacement and the social impact. We haven't spoken about the digital divide. We haven't spoken about wealth distribution. We haven't touched on privacy and what sort of data protection really means in an AI world, if it's even possible. But you've got this whole plethora of sort of ethical considerations which need to be at the center of the development of technology. With each line of code that is written, we need to be thinking through an ethical score sheet that we could put into practice. Now, if a, I'm going to say a third world country, a country that's not traditionally seen as a, a superpower, if they were to, if they were to, I'm, let's go to a a very quantifiable scenario. If they were to come up with a quantum computer that could set the bar computationally and had algorithms that would put them ahead of other people, do you think that would shift the political sphere currently going on on earth? I mean, what would that do to politics moving forward? Would they have a seat then at the Security Council because of that capability? I mean, is that how large this could end up being? So technology is directly linked to the two most important pillars of governance, which are economic prosperity and political stability. If you look at any society which is significantly advanced, you'd see both of those elements occurring in what is often a democratic process. So undoubtedly, undoubtedly, an organization or country which has the ability of harnessing AI and or quantum computing is going to change these two pillars of economic uh, capability and wealth creation, uh, creation and political stability very, very deeply. And maybe that gets us to think on why, right? Because these technology will immediately redefine the principle of work like work is such a fundamental concept, Joe, right? For the last 70 years or so, we've been influenced by the Marxist struggle between labor and capital. But what an a, a nation could do with strong AI capabilities is essentially automate the labor component, whereby humans would not be required to do the task which they do now. In fact, we, we, we often speak about sort of a post-utopia environment in which humans may not have work to do at all. But 
certainly in the near term, we should be able to automate anything between 45% and above of the existing tasks which exist uh, in the world today. So really, from an economic and political standpoint, that means that we have this golden opportunity to rehumanize work. Right, we tell people a job is meaningful job because we just need them to do it. Right, I mean, I qualified as a lawyer 21 years ago, and as a young lawyer, I used to write template driven uh, contracts. And today, most young lawyers do the same. So, you have repetitive tasks which suck the joy out of a particular job and give very little back to the end customer purchasing that particular contract. So what if we move those jobs to AI or AI powered by quantum computing, right? So that's the possibility for us to cut away from repetitive, mundane work and instead rethink the very essence of what work is. And that political or territorial grouping that can do that is going to create this turning point that you mentioned. And it will create economic well-being, it will create a new economic model, and we therefore need to start thinking right away about how do we distribute the wealth or the super wealth that this particular entity could uh, create and how do we ensure that the political framework that governs it remains attuned to the values of society. So I'm immediately drawn to the idea of manipulation and deep fakes. And right now there, there really is no... Uh, well, there is not a watermark that is placed on images for you to tell. And so as a, as a person right now in 2023, if you see an image that doesn't seem correct, Dr. Gatt, how are you able to determine if it is fake and AI generated trying to manipulate you or if it's real? What are the hints and the, and the little tricks you can look for? When a scam looks too good to be true, it usually is. I think most of the deep fakes which we see created are often just a vehicle uh, to uh, scam a person into taking an action that they generally would not have taken. Um, this is not always the case. As you know, we've seen media manipulation occur through deep fake, so there are, of course, diverse reasons. But perhaps we just need to go back to the basic truths of living sensibly, which is when an offer or an option looks too good to be true or true fantastical, you need to step aside for a while and really think through it before you act on it. I think technology will become so good, Joe, that you won't be able to find an artifact a watermark, a, a glitch, which indicates that a deep fake is a deep fake. So we need to rest on our intellectual ability of separating the wheat from the chaff. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us, Joe, is the importance of education. Mm -hmm. That if we fail tomorrow's generation by not providing them with the tools they need to discern and to stand back and determine what is misinformation and what is not, what is disinformation and what is not, what is fiction and what is fact, mm -hmm. we will be creating a huge gap in tomorrow's world, a huge cognitive gap. And I'm particularly concerned about this because if you think about it, we are keen to provide our three-year-olds 
with you know nutritional classes at school on how to separate I don't know carbs from protein and how to eat healthily, but we're not providing an information digest or an information diet to these very same three-year-olds who need to be able to be brought up knowing how to stop doom scrolling, how to control their tendency of addiction towards very exciting technology. Now, certainly they are going to live in a digital world and they need to have all the right exposure. But that is why education is key. Because Joe, we're not going to be able to see artifacts and watermarks easily, but we are able to change our education system in time to ensure that tomorrow's citizens are well equipped from a very tender age to use technology in a way that is mindful. And that changes everything. And then before I let you go, Dr. Gatt, how old do you think is old enough to start teaching that once they can talk and walk, do you think? Well, my child, I've got two boys. Um, One of them is nine. His name is Beppe. And one of them is four. His name is Gigi. Um, I I felt that my younger child from age three should have started receiving, um, you know, basic classes in information technology. And these classes are critical at a tender age because the cognitive state of our mind at a young age is like a sponge. It has the capability to absorb and understand in ways which we pretty much haven't figured out yet. But we do know so from, for example, the adoption of language, which happens very early. So I think at that very early and tender stage of age three, we should start providing very basic principles of computer usage, which quell our anxiety around using technology and allow us to understand how to maximize the potential of this very revolutionary technology. Amazing. Dr. Gatt, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, How can folks get a hold of some of the work you're doing uh, if they want to learn more about AI? Well, one of the lovely things that AI has brought forward is that there are a lot of AI tutors often available free of charge, either from uh, educational institutions or third-party entities, which uh, one can subscribe to often for free. It's certainly a topic which I believe is going to help uh, most professions, so it's worth um Uh, trying to find these educational resources. Most of the work which I do uh, gets posted on my uh, blog, uh, which is jjgut.com, and then pushed to Twitter and so on. So uh, anyone who wants to follow my uh, thinking can do so there. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Joe. Thank you. 